I'm going to go ahead and get us started in prayer, if that's okay. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, just a new day. We, uh, we thank you for every opportunity you've given us to, to serve you. We seek to, uh, to walk in your will always. Lord, so direct and guide our, our conversation today. Direct and guide uh, everything that we do, Lord, uh, through this conference. Thank you so much. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Greg Seeger. I'm a director of a mission organization. We specialize in sending uh, healthcare professionals to work both at the community level and the hospital level. Uh, And we have folks in 14 countries. Uh, I wrote a little book a few years back called When Healthcare Hurts. And uh, some of the concepts that we're going to share today really came are, are in the book. And I didn't come up with anything new. I just kind of put together a lot of stuff that people have been doing over the years. And, and uh, so, so a lot of this stuff is not, most of it, I would say 99.9% of it is not original. All I did was kind of pull a bunch of resources together so that we could put them in one place that people would have access to them. Uh, this is my wife, Candy. Uh, she's going to be helping me a little bit today. I want to uh, try to be as interactive as possible, but unfortunately this format is not the best and, and most conducive to that. Uh, well, number one, make sure your format is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, normally we would, I, I would have loved to turn this room into circles, and uh, I just knew that we were going to get pretty full, and I didn't think we were going to have quite enough room to do that. So, uh, Welcome, everybody. Come on in. We may be standing room only here shortly, but and uh, now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. John Payne because he's the, <laughs> he's, the he, he, he's much better at this stuff than I will ever hope to be. Uh, Can we just see a hands of, uh, how many doctors do we have in the room? Physicians? Okay. Or, or med students, residents? Okay. How many nurses? Okay. Okay. And how many uh, health educators kind of thing? Okay, great. Thank you. It helps us kind of understand. Good. Okay. Rule number two, learn your audience, right? (laughs) I'm going to share with you a story that is in the book. It's called The Lion Story. How many have heard The Lion Story before? Okay. Okay. well, well, my version may be a little different, but we'll uh, we'll go with it. And, and the idea of of the lion story is it it uh, kind of breaks down, I think, some some challenges and missions. So I want you to kind of listen for them. Uh, I'm not a great storyteller, so forgive me if I if I mess this up, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. Of uh, the story goes like this: There was once a a village in Africa, and and in this remote rural village. They began to have a problem, and the problem was that a lion came and attacked one night. And and they, uh, this hadn't happened in many years, over 50 years since this had occurred. And they weren't sure what to do about it, so the community met, and they they talked, and they decided, well, this was probably a one-time event. So uh, they, they weren't too concerned. But again, the next night, this happened again. So again, the community came back together. And uh, there was a fatality. The community was really concerned. So they sent, they they appointed a couple of folks from their village to go to the city. And they took a bus a long way across the country. 
to get to the city. And there they met with some officials who assured them that they would dispatch a game warden and, and deal with the lion. But the game warden never came after they had returned. And this problem kept happening over and over again. So they decided, well, who else are we going to reach out to for help? So they went to a, uh, after they got together and they talked and they talked, and they said, well, there's an aid organization working in the next community over. Let's go talk to them. And let's see if, if they, maybe they can help us. So they went and they talked to the aid organization, and they said, well, we would be glad to help you. So the aid organization went, and, and they all got together and had a bunch of meetings and decided they should go back and talk to the village. And, and they told the village, we know what to do. We're going to come and put lights up for you. And, and they'll have motion sensors on them, so when the lions come in, the lights will come on, and the lions will run away. Well, that made a lot of sense. So they said, okay, yeah, let's do that. So they put up the lights, and actually, for a few nights, when the lights came on, the lions ran away. But then, soon after that, the lions weren't afraid anymore. Then what happened? Well, they came back, and this problem reoccurred. And the problem wasn't really solved. So they decided to go to an aid organization a couple villages over beyond that. And they asked them for help. So that organization met and, and had a bunch of meetings and a bunch of discussions about how to, how to fix this problem. And they decided, okay, let's go back to the community and we'll tell them we're going to put sirens with the lights. And that for sure will scare the lions away. Makes sense, right? So they did that. And the community said, yes, please put the sirens up. So they scared the lions for a little while. But eventually the lions stopped being afraid of the lights and the sirens. And the problem continued. So they were kind of exhausted at this point, didn't know what to do. But they said, well, the community met again, and they were discussing amongst themselves, and they said, okay, there's a really large aid organization a little farther away. Let's go talk to them and see if they have any ideas. So they went to that organization, and they all met, and, and they discussed, and they talked uh, amongst themselves in the aid organization and decided the best thing to do for the community was put up a fence. So they came back to the community and said, okay, we're going to build you a fence. So they built a fence all the way around the community. And that seemed to solve the problem because the lions could no longer get in. Everybody celebrated the fires at night. Uh, there, was no, there, there was no issues with lions coming into the community anymore. So everybody was happy. But then one morning, some of the village women with the children went out to the river to get, to get water, and the lion attacked and this became a pattern where it would wait outside the fence for people to come out of the community. So the problem really wasn't solved. So the community came back together and began to talk and discuss and share, and, and they realized that there was still a couple of men in the community that had hunted lions many, many years ago. And they realized that, uh, that maybe they needed to talk to them within their own community and decide how they could fix this problem. And the older men knew, had the knowledge of how to hunt and kill the lion. So they taught the younger men how to do this. And, and the problem was solved within weeks. So the question we have to ask uh, in, in this is kind of, how does this story relate to North American missions? Anybody give me an answer on that? Somebody's got to have at least some thoughts on that. 
good or bad? Okay. I think it's important to share your knowledge in a different culture and let them decide if that's going to work, but not really say, not put it into effect until you find out what they have Okay. Share your knowledge in a different culture, but not really put it into effect until they... Okay. okay. I think I would go further and say that um, North American culture is not another, cult- another culture, and they're very different. And I believe the starting point for people that are going out to health is to do their homework and understand from the, the home culture where they can be helpful rather than, than assume that they have the answers. Okay. Don't assume and, and uh, really study the culture. And I, I think those are good good thoughts. Yes? Well, the history of our country, we've never really valued indigenous cultures or the people we go to help or, and in the case of like when we started this country, kind of to take over, we just assume that our way is better and we like to classify people as the other and see them as one of us. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So, so valuing the wisdom that's there. I think that's, that's, that's really important. Can you see any parallels between the Lion story and short-term missions, specifically? <laughs> You're shaking your head yes. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think our tendency is to uh, we go out on these short-term trips because we have solutions to people's problems. And uh, our default is to solve problems we don't understand for people we know nothing. Solve problems we don't understand for people we know nothing about. Boy, that's a summation of American missions if I've ever heard one. <laughs> Can we take that as a quote? Any other thoughts on this? Isn't that the case? That's that spoken like a true Che person. <laughs> of yeah, here's here's a, a question that I, I really want to throw out there is can you see any parallels between mission hospitals and the lion story? And I don't know how many people engage at the mission hospital level, but I think it's an important consideration. See, I think that. Uh, I want to review a couple basic concepts here. Obviously, uh, you know, a lot of you guys know this, some of this stuff, and some of you may not. So I want to just kind of review. But basically, the idea of relief versus development. And, you know, relief is really meant to provide short-term charity in emergency crisis situations, whereas development is about improving self-sufficiency and capacity and giving handouts of goods and services, even medical services, in situations that call for development can do enormous damage to development efforts. They do this really by undermining the capacity and willingness uh, of resource-poor communities to steward their own resources. That's a quote from one of Brian Fickert's articles a number of years ago. And that's an important distinction to make. The vast majority of our, our efforts and missions uh, today are really geared towards relief in the context of development, and we need to be cognizant of that. 
But probably the biggest challenge and the greatest challenge in responding to human need is this concept or idea of paternalism. And it's something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Paternalism really is defined as an attitude of a person that subordinates another as if they need to be controlled in a fatherly way. And, you know, the provision of free, unsolicited goods, services, uh, in services and communities, really, by definition, is paternalism. It assumes that those coming to serve know what is best for the population they will be visiting. And I think as oftentimes we're very guilty of this. And we need to be aware of it, even at the subconscious level, so that we really work against this kind of thought process. Because it, it, it's exist, it exists on every level in missions uh, in many instances, especially when we're, we're, we're trying to gain a more holistic view of missions and, and, and respond to human physical need as well as spiritual. This is the, uh, this is in the, I put this in the book. This really came out of some uh, transformational development documents through World Vision. And I don't think you can read that up there, but I'm going to kind of give you a quick summation of it. This is a, uh, what we call a community participation ladder. And, and it kind of identifies where people are operating at what level on this ladder. The, the earlier levels really being, you know, we kind of know what's best and we're going to go in and we're going to, we're going to set up a medical camp and do medical, of, even though that's really never been assessed or, or really never been fully determined of or requested by the community. Uh, or it may be requested, but is there really, you know, there, there may be a hospital down the road that we're really not even considering. Those are kind of where I think uh, oftentimes a lot of North American missions tend to operate from is, is the bottom end of this, more the manipulation or information or even concentration. But very rarely do we achieve kind of getting to the upper end of this ladder in community participation, being partnership and, and really independent control uh, by local uh, and, and national population. And, and that's ultimately the biggest challenge. And even in mission hospital settings, you know, I've seen hundreds of mission hospitals fail. And, and most of the time, it's, it's a result of, of this, you know, some of this thought process that there's never that idea of bringing up the next generation and sustaining that Christian ethos. And, and what happens is there's never an exit strategy. It's all about us doing the work, and, and, and there's never a thought process of what is this going to look like 20 or 50 years from now. And that's something that we need to begin to think about in, in, in our missional efforts. <clears throat> but when we get involved in starting to gain participation, this is what we need to behave, be, watch out for, is that, and this ends up happening, I think, sometimes. You know, how can, you know, how can we get those folks to do what we want, or how can we facilitate what we want to do in this community? And it's, okay, well, why not community participation? And, and I think it's a great illustration of sometimes what happens even when our intentions are, are, are pretty good. So one thing I wanted to throw out there, when it comes to defining, and we've looked a lot, I've been part of a working group on best practices in, in uh, global health missions specifically for a number of years, and we've kind of really thought about and tried to digest some of the, the material that's out there uh, that's already been published. And, and the idea of this is really 
what is the unintended consequences of purposive action? This was a concept by, came up with by a social scientist by the name of Robert Merton. And the idea is that whatever we do with our good intentions, it's going to have an action. And there's often going to be very unintended consequences of that action. So we need to really put some forethought in to what those, I mean, even when a, even when a project is really, really good, see if I have the, I'm going to, oh. even when a project is really, really good, sometimes those, uh, there's really uh, bad unintended consequences. A good example was a, a dam project that was done in Haiti. It was phenomenal. They, they, it was community-driven. It was community-owned. They, uh, they, they consulted outside expertise for engineering purposes, but they, the community wanted this dam in order to create an agriculture project in a second rice harvest in this, in this area. Well, it, it, was, it went flawlessly. And by textbook norms and community development, it was the perfect kind of project. Of, but then... Ultimately, what, what happened was you flood the valley for that much longer every year with standing water, and now you have the highest prevalence of malaria in this hemisphere in that particular region of Haiti. So there's always unintended consequences. And when we're, when we're engaging at the community level or at the hospital level or wherever we're at, we need to begin to think about what are those, what are those uh, unintended consequences going to be. Oops, wrong way, sorry. So our missional efforts really need to be geared around, of, you know, how do we create, promote, develop, sustain human dignity in the context of responding to physical need? And, and that's something that we really need to think about in world missions. Uh, and, and sometimes I think the development community has wrapped their head around that a lot better than we have. Uh, and, but it's something that needs to be at the forefront of everything we do is sustaining uh, human dignity in, in all of our efforts. Even in emergency disaster situations where we're providing relief, human dignity becomes a paramount uh, priority. And I, one of the best, uh, one of, I think, the best practices in Christian development efforts is really this thing we call community health evangelism. Uh, and I, I, I think that if you've seen CHE and you're not, if you haven't had much access to it, begin to learn what that's all about because all of the techniques we're going to talk about here are contained within that system along with about going on what now John 7000 curriculums of you know so we're this is something that as a community if you're interested in engaging at the community level this is something you need to think about I talk about in the book there's three real paths to the community one goes directly to the community one goes to the hospital who serves the community. One goes through the hospital to the community. Okay? But probably what most people don't realize is the hardest one to deal with, the hardest of those paths, is to engage at the community level. So oftentimes we come up with this idea, well, we can fix missions. We're just going to educate. We're just going to teach, right? Of... And, and, and that's kind of flawed in a number of ways. One, this is usually this guy over here who's teaching like me. That, that's usually what our style of education looks like. Uh, and, and that is not very, uh, that's not very supportive of human dignity in the sense that we're not recognizing 
the resources of, of those that we've come to serve and the experience and the knowledge and the know-how of and uh, we obviously want to go more towards this end of the circle, but there's more to it than that, and it's much more, it's much deeper and much more complex, and we need to think that through of what that looks like. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to give you a lot of examples because I want you guys to have some opportunity to participate, but I will say, you know, a good example was in West Africa, one of the worldviews that, you know, I think that we've struggled with over the years is the you know, that sometimes uh, you don't feed uh, protein or meat to children, uh, to young, uh, young children, because it makes them delinquents or thieves. So you have incredibly high, uh, you have incredibly high levels of pediatric malnutrition and, and, pediat- and related mortality because of a worldview issue. And how do you break through that? Well, you don't do that overnight. You certainly don't do it in the short-term context. You do it by building relationships and, 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 and that, that takes time. Uh, but, and this is just a, an illustration of, I think, of a, a really, uh, a CHE model, but it's a little bit more complex than, than uh, and, and it takes some study. So I would really, really encourage you to reach out to uh, any of the organizations that are teaching the uh, Community Health Evangelism, TOT1, of, and just begin that journey and begin to learn these techniques that I'm going to just tell you briefly about. This is called participatory rural appraisal, PRA. Of, now, of PRA and PLA, you'll hear these terms kind of interchangeably used. Uh, they've kind of evolved and kind of come together over the years. But the idea of participatory rural appraisal is that we, we want to learn and, and a lot of the uh, a lot of what we're doing in the way of participatory uh, workshops is trying to learn uh, as much as we can. Uh, and this this is kind of an interesting little uh, uh, cartoon because he's saying, you know, of uh, you know, we're gonna we can tell you. And, and the the guy who's doing the survey is saying, well, you know, I, I've it, you know I, I can do this, and I, he's going to figure it out on his own. And then the women. The, the, the young lady here down in the corner is saying, of, of, and, and you often get you often get this wrong, and uh, we've learned to you know keep the most important things to ourselves, and that's so true uh, when you're working from outside the community as an outsider. Of you know, the idea. Pete, Robert Chambers has written a lot on uh, he's. He's a uh, academic in in the UK, but he's written a lot on PRA and PLA, participatory learning and action is is the model. And and you'll see a lot of all of the CHE tools really kind of stem. A lot of them come out of of these kind of materials. But of his description is that PRA and PLA it is a is a growing family of approaches, methods, behaviors that enable people to share, enhance, analyze their own knowledge and life conditions, and to plan, act, monitor, and evaluate. So it's not us doing this, okay? Of, I'm just going to throw up a list of PLA tools and PRA tools so that you know what they are. Um, can we make this available? Yeah, it's all of this stuff is right out of the book. Of, 
And the book is on, I, I don't want to do a promo for the book, but you can get this thing on Amazon for like three bucks as an ebook, and it's got all the resources that you can click on, and it'll take you to those things. Of the, uh, and I've got a, there's a few over there, and there's a few at the booth. Oh, uh, when healthcare hurts, an evidence-based best practice or guide for best practices in global health initiatives. Of and again, all of these tools are something in, in it. I, I just want. I obviously don't have time to explain each one of them. This is they're asking me to do a one-hour workshop in something that should be a week. Uh, <laughs> But I, I just want to give you a quick overview of the idea of wealth ranking, preference ranking, matrix scoring, uh, the 10 seed technique. All of these are, are great interactive tools uh, that, that help us learn from each other. And, and that's ultimately the, the idea. Some of the PRA tools being, you know, uh, semi-structured interviews and focus groups, uh, brainstorming, SWOT analysis, storytelling. A lot of these things we've seen. Uh, emerge out of, you know, in, in some of the, the things we do here. Uh, but the most important thing to remember is that the goal is always to enable people to do their own investigations, analysis, uh, presentations, planning, action, their own, uh, own their own outcome, and teach and share their knowledge with us. And, and that's, that's our objective. And when we're talking about helping people how to help themselves, we need to approach uh, everything we do with, uh, I'm here to learn, not to teach. And, and if that's anything, any takeaway out of this is, I'm here to learn, not to teach. Of, you know, the essentials of PR really is the attitude and behaviors that say, I am here to listen and to learn from you. We need to develop PLA practitioners, you know, what PLA practitioners call critical self-awareness. You know, Chambers describes it as in a, the important aspects of self-awareness is embracing doubt, learning from error, uh, continuously trying to do better, building and learning improvement into every experience and, and taking personal responsibility. And, you know, a lot of what we do is um, really to engage at the community level, it takes time. A lot of community development agencies won't start a they won't start a program until they've had staff in that community for one to three years. They don't want to do anything but do stakeholder analysis, identify all of the stakeholders, allow those stake, you know, figure out the relationships between the stakeholders. And, uh, you know, those are, those are things that take time to really figure out how to do. Uh, and that's why I say it's really difficult sometimes to work at the level of, the community if you're not experienced in doing that. But going of, in the book we talk a little bit about, and, and this is, you'll find, this is written by a friend of mine, Ted Lancaster. I don't know if any of you know him or know who he is, but he wrote a book called Setting Up Community Health Programs. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, he's based in the UK. He was a missionary in India for a number of years. <coughs> Excuse me. Of, but he you know, he outlines really well in that book, Setting Up Community Health Programs, the difference between horizontal programs and what we call vertical programs. Now, these are horizontal programs when we're talking about operating at the community level. And horizontal programs are, uh, these are owned by the community. They're, they're community-directed programs. They require community partnership in design, management. They are founded in mutual design. 
that empowers the community to respond to their own health needs or their own needs, period. They are directed towards addressing a wide range of problems rather, you know, rather than a single issue. They, prevent, uh, they are prevention-focused, not curative-focused, essentially. They may have curative care components. They are vo- often and most often volunteer-operated and supported, making them very cost-effective projects and programs, of IEHA or Community Health Evangelism. They, uh, if there is a compensation model incorporated, it is usually modest and sustainable without outside funding. Vertical programs, I'm sorry this is so small. Uh, I didn't realize it. It must have self-adjusted the text. I think I tried to. Vertical programs are different in the sense that they are generally, they're operated, uh, they're often disease-specific. They're operated from outside professionals. They require outside community uh, knowledge from outside the community to, to function and to operate. And, and these programs are often disease-specific, i.e., you know, uh, rollback malaria. HIV-AIDS prevention, all of these kinds of things. You see these kind of programs. They can be driven at the community horizontal level. But oftentimes these programs receive outside funding and they're driven from the hospital level. So these are very effective programs in the community. And, and many Christian organizations use them and incorporate some really good uh, uh, some really good evangelical models within what they do in in this uh, in these efforts. They often, uh, unfortunately, they often undermine community ownership, and that's a concern in anything that we do. That the community has to own these projects and programs that you're involved with. Of, as I said, they're deliver, uh, often driven by outside donors. Uh, they're sustained. They're, they're usually not sustainable if outside funding dries up, uh, and, and that's a, obviously a, a big concern. And often, uh, I, I think that they're not as successful as horizontal programs uh, just for that reason. And uh, I, wanna, I don't want to talk too much about that because I want to uh, move on to a story. And then we want to talk real quick about a story that of, you want to you want to come up and read it? You're you're coming up this direction, so. Absolutely. these two things is, is what, what Ted calls uh, community-based health care. This, this is what was driven, I don't know if anybody has ever heard of the Alma-Ata. This was a declaration uh, back in the 70s. It was Health for All by 2000. And the idea of this was really to drive uh, community-based health care models. Of, and how do we strategically reach out and bring 
community-based programming. And, you know, a good example of that is I know that uh, the, the AMI uh, Chase were, were doing uh, vaccinations at one time, you know, for uh, polio vaccines. And so there's ways that these programs can integrate very effectively. And that's the goal here, is that you can't, we, can't, we can't dichotomize physical and spiritual. Neither can we dichotomize horizontal and vertical health program. If we're really serious about bringing health care to the poor, uh, those two things have to work together, and they can. And, and there's many, mo- many models where they do that very effectively. Uh, but I'm going to let Candy read this because I think this story comes better from a mom than from a guy. <laughs> and I want you to listen. Uh, here. Okay. Uh, I think I'm st- – there we go. That's it. <clears throat> I have a really loud mouth and probably don't need to – that's true. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married 25 years next year. <laughs> I've been a nurse for 30 years. And Greg, how long have you been a nurse? Uh, Our daughter's 21, so about 20, 21 years. 25. No, 25? Yeah. Something like that. He was a paramedic before that. So we've been in the medical field for a really long time. So Anyway, here we go. Raku, uh, this is a true story written by Sheila Surveig, excuse me, from... Um, and it took place in a village in India. Raku had wanted to only breastfeed her baby. This had long been the tradition of women in her village. However, in order for her family to survive, Raku had to work in the landowner's fields from dawn to dusk. With the long hours of separation from her baby, she had little choice but to give her baby other foods. Soon, she no longer could produce much breast milk. As both a landless peasant and a woman, Raku had doubly, was doubly disadvantaged. For long hours of exhausting work, she was paid too little to adequately feed her family. Since the age of seven, her son, Cannon, had been helping make ends meet by taking the cattle of several landowning families out to graze in the scrub. While she was working in the distant fields, Raku left her baby in their wattle hut in the care of her five-year-old daughter, Panu. Each morning before dawn, Raku would haul water from the distant water hole. She would pound a few handfuls of ragi, which is millet, and cook it and in, into gruel for the family to eat. Although there was often not enough to fill all their stomachs, Raku would always leave a little on the plate, instructing Panu to feed it to the baby while her mother was at work in the distant fields. Sorry. Even with the older children also working, the family's earnings could scarcely buy enough food. The baby, like the rest of the family, often went hungry, worsening malnutrition, and rebounded bouts of diarrhea soon became a vicious cycle. Sometimes Raku took the sick baby to a traditional healer who gave him rice, water, and herbal teas. The baby would usually get better for a few days, but soon the cycle would begin, and Raku's baby became thinner and thinner. One day, he developed such severe diarrhea that did not get much better, even when Raku gave him the traditional remedies of rice water and traditional and herbal tea. His runny stomach continued for several days until the butt baby was as limp and shriveled as a rice patty in a drop. In desperation, Raku decided to take her baby to the hospital in the city. This was a hard decision, as Raku had to miss a day's work and a day's pay. At best, they spent a day without food for the family. They had no reserves. At, right, at worst, Raku might lose her job. 
the consequences of which she was afraid to think about. She knew that a wiser mother would let her sick baby die to preserve the rest of the family. But Raku's love for her baby was so strong. Raku sold a bronze pot she had inherited from her mother, the last of her remaining possessions of any value to buy to pay for bus fare and medicine, and took her baby, her sick baby, to the city hospital. She had to pay a bribe to get into the hospital gate. After hours of waiting and long lines, at last her baby was seen. By then, the baby was on the verge of death. The doctor scolded Raku for waiting so long and for not taking better care of her baby. He referred her to a nurse who carefully explained to her the importance of breastfeeding and something the nurse called hygiene. Above all, the nurse emphasized her baby needed more and better food. Raku listened in silence. <coughs> Meanwhile, the doctor put a needle into a vein in the baby's ankle and connected it by a thin tube to a bottle of glucose water. By evening, the baby's shrunken body filled out a bit and he seemed more alert. The diarrhea had stopped and the late night nurse removed the needle from the baby's leg. The next morning, a doctor gave Raku a prescription for medicines to buy in the pharmacy and send them home. On the way home, the baby's diarrhea began again. Arriving back home, Raku had neither food, nor money, nor anything left to sell, and her baby died a short time later. Thanks. So this is a story that repeats itself. Uh, more than six million times a year. You know, we have a responsibility as a Christian community to be engaged with this. But addressing it doesn't come, doesn't happen at the community, and it doesn't happen or just at the community, and it doesn't happen just at the hospital level. But what I want to ask you guys to do is now that you've heard the story of Raku and her baby, uh, and, and this is an ongoing struggle and challenge. I want you, from your perspective, if you're a healthcare professional or whatever it is you do, to take those notes, those little note cards that you have, and I want you to list the three highest priority of problems that you've identified in this. And I, do we want to have them come up and do it? Of yeah, I think we have enough yeah, time. Yeah, we have enough time. If you, when you place them on here, if you could place it closest to the area that you feel that the... And you might have one over here and two over here or two over here or one over here. Wherever you feel that it, it has the most prevalence. So, so when you're done, just come up and put them on the board. So either if you feel that they're mostly community problems, you can put it to the community side if it's mostly a hospital issue that caused the baby's death, and that's really what we're asking, is what caused the baby's death? Is this more of a community issue, or is this a hospital issue? And just place your three, three uh, problems, uh, or the three highest problems, somewhere on that, uh, uh, on that road between the hospital and the community. Somebody's done this before. I always tell that. 
You guys write small. I'm going to need my glasses. Well, you guys are quiet. It's like a church in here.
The road to the hospital is getting shorter and shorter. Isn't it? <laughs> as many of them as I can, okay? On the hospital side, we have going here. Where's my glasses? <laughs> you young folks have so much to look forward to. Uh, give it, getting the right treatment, hospital failure to engage her and find out how best to monitor, hospital right advice, wrong application, no questions asked about RACU's resources, Failure to engage the community to seek solutions to lack of individual empowerment. Uh, talking to patients to understand their situation. Not understanding Raku's situation. Lack of empathy, compassion to step away from the hospital to see where the mother is coming from. Lack of effort to understand Raku's lifestyle. Lack of knowledge or care to know the mother's resources. Lack of cultural awareness, no knowledge or assessment of Raku's issues. Uh, not engaging in patient reality, textbook teaching that is disengaged from community life and reality, no listening to Raku's complete story, understanding, need more education for families and the small children, healthcare, this is a doctor, no, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, understanding the fundamental problem, lack of social worker, charitable services at a hospital, lack of understanding and explanation in the situation in him by the medical person, ignorant health care providers, communication. <laughs> Oops. I kind of like that one, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Communication, failure to identify root problem, lack of understanding, teaching lot and not learning, physician nurse paternalism. Hospital staff did not listen to Raku for situation needs, didn't understand where Raku was coming from. She tried to give enough food but couldn't. Did not know or ask her the situation, gave What's her a band-aid, fixed and meaningless advice. So pretty much, is there anyone that's lack of understanding? They're pretty much not listening, not assessing, providing for the needs. So pretty much that's the problem over here, right? You want to expound on that, sir? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that really does sum it up really well. But uh, there are also process problems from a healthcare perspective, obviously. You know, premature discharge, not listening was a huge one. Of, you know, I mean, this child, as far as quality of care goes, from our perspective, from a healthcare perspective, was was really poor from, from the start. The fact that Reku had to pay a bribe to get through into the gate. Of, and, you know, I've seen that happen at mission hospitals, by the way. Of, you know, and, you know, and those are things that have to be controlled and watched closely. Of, but let's look at some of the community, and then I want to kind of see if we can draw these together a little bit. Okay. Sorry. A lot of these are similar, um, so I'm going to kind of go through, and if there's a different one, I'll, I'll let you know. 
Um, this one is very good. It says, mother seemingly alone in the community, lack of support from her neighbors, which I, I saw that quite a few times, that the community was not helping the mother. Uh, poverty, uh, a poor paying job, understanding nutritional needs, uh, again, community resources not available, lack of skill of workers and adequate jobs, financial resources, again, um, cycle that doesn't work, cycle of poverty. Um, the landowner employer allowing biblical worldview to influence his business, allowing gleaning, community, mercy, and action. That's a, a good one. Better job wages, uh, lack of action by the mother, no one in the community help, uh, poverty, poverty, lack of resources, education, lack of resources. Pretty much we've all come up with similar conclusions over here. The hospital was far away. Um, this one is communication between that. Okay. This one says, where is the food going? Not to the people growing it, but to the outsiders. That's an interesting concept. So the, the person she's working for is obviously selling the food to people that can afford it, and then she's left with nothing. That's very so not take care, taking care of your employees. Um, yeah, that's pretty much where... Did I miss anyone that anybody said that was different? Because I kind of glanced through them all. So we're lacking the resources, we're lacking education, we're lacking money, um, and time. She's having to work too hard and too long, so that pretty much sums mm -hmm. it up. And that, it also sums up something else, which is uh, the idea of lack. And, and when we begin to look at these problems, that's often where we start, which is, we look at needs, and how many how many of you guys have ever talked about or thought about needs assessment? Well, then you should probably remove that from your vocabulary, of because when I make a whole big list of things that you need, of and that can be a very disempowering list. Of, and that's not the place to start from when you're trying to help people help themselves. When you make a list of all the things you don't have, uh, all the things that you uh, wish you had, uh, and then and tell you to fix it, that's really not the place to start. But that is our worldview right here. Is it's we lack. Uh, they lack resources. She lacks this. Instead of our starting place needs to be, what does she have as her resource? What resources are available in that community to support her? Is there, and there may already be, a breastfeeding co-op in that community? Uh, there's so many things that in, 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 that, that in ways this can be addressed that, uh, you know, that we don't look at as outsiders. All we see uh, in poverty is a lack of stuff and a lack of resources. And instead of intrinsically looking at people as they are uh, created in the image of God, 
uh, with innate human value and dignity and and have the ability to take care of themselves, uh, that's our starting point. So you make a list of all the assets that are available for that person in, in that community is the starting point. And you allow them to make that list and them to draw their conclusions from it and then to engage in the planning process. But I wanted to put these two pictures up because I kind of knew that we were going to have two spectrums here. We were going to have people that, that we'd have all these problems over here and we'd have all those problems over here and not probably <clears throat> not a lot in the middle or interacting. I just came back from India where I was visiting our staff there and I got a chance to go out and visit some community projects uh, in Bangalore. And they were driven by Bangalore Baptist Hospital, where we have a craniofacial surgeon there, and, uh, you know, which is where a lot of the, the kids that, uh, uh, that he operates on come from as these slum projects. And it was a great example of how the, the, the hospital was engaged at horizontal projects. But they also had clinics in these. They've established clinics in these communities. But they were also working in, in breastfeeding co-ops. And they had all kinds of really uh, great community-based projects that were, that were really facilitating the community's response to their own health problems. But it was the hospital that was initiating those. And it was a Christian hospital who was a mission hospital who had a heart for both uh, the, the care delivery end of things, but also how do we, how do we facilitate uh, community response to their own problems. And if that's the take, I hope that's the takeaway today, is that our responsibility when working at the community level is not to fix people or fix anything. Our, our, our job, if we're working at the community level, is to facilitate and help the community find ways to respond to their own health issues and their own challenges and take responsibility for their own, uh, their own, uh, their own health issues. And if we can figure out and develop strategies to do that, and I don't want to sound like this is a, a Che uh, promotional seminar, <laughs> but I... I It works, and, it, and, it, and it's a really, uh, it, it's an effective strategy. We make, in our orientation now, we make even our surgeons go through a JTOT1 because these techniques and these principles are incredibly important because whether you're using them at the hospital level to facilitate change in that hospital community or whether you're using them at the community level uh, the principles are very much the same. And, you know, when we're, when we're attempting to facilitate change in an organizational culture or in the culture of, of, of a community to some extent, and, and I know, you know, uh, the idea of changing culture, I use that from an organizational perspective, but change uh, a worldview uh, in a community, then you know, these are very, very, very important techniques. So I would just encourage you to reach out to the organizations that are teaching the, the CHE training. Uh, some of them have got it down to, uh, you know, I think a four-day uh, four TOT now for at least the first one. And then if you're going to be on the field full-time, uh, I would encourage you to look at some of the internship projects if you're serious about working in the community. MAI uh, facilitates one in the Philippines, I think is probably the 
best one uh, that I've seen. There's one in, uh, also in Ghana that is, uh, you know, also got a great reputation. So it's five weeks of really learning how to engage at the community level. And without a little bit of training, these PLA techniques are, are really hard to get. Uh, so I would encourage you to, uh, to do that. And I wanted to leave a couple minutes, and it actually worked out, for questions. Uh, so do we have any? Yes? a tough one. I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but does anybody else maybe have some ideas on it? Come on up here, John. I, I told you I wanted to give you this from the beginning. Anyway, you're far more qualified to be up here than I am. <laughs> it's not true. Greg's done a great job. Uh, but I will say that if you don't combine evangelism and discipleship with the development process, it will never be sustainable without outside money continuing to be there. So if you really want something that is sustainable long-term, Jesus Christ has to become part of the mix. Development is inherently something that is materialistic and selfish. So if we focus on getting that without meeting Jesus at the same time, we will not have a sustainable product. So one of the beauties of community health evangelism is that it focuses on ways to make this process a balanced holistic development that is both physical and spiritual. So, great. Thanks very much. No problem. Thank you, John. Uh, and and I, I kind of went with that as, a, uh, as, as an assumption that we, we started from as a Christian uh, organization, but I think that's really important to, to remind ourselves that that needs to be the foundation of everything that we do. Check if there's another question. Another question? Uh, one of the things, just really quickly. Come on up here, uh, Berlin. Everybody hear me and I'll pick up on the microphone. Okay. I've got a wonderful African preacher voice. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, it has to be evangelism that you lead people to. But within Shade, the key concept that fits is that belief drives behavior. So I'm going to give you a brief story about, like, that Muslim village. That program won't be sustainable after a period of time because their beliefs won't sustain it. You have to introduce Christ as you go along. In Africa, Tonda, multiple other places, people believe their relatives were changed into fish. Now, we all probably heard the problem, proverb, teach a man a fish, feed him for a day, give a man a fish, feed him for a lifetime. Well, if you believe the fish is your uncle, if I go to give you that fish, you're going to chase me out of town. If I go to teach you how to fish, you might out of respect listen to me, but when I leave town, you will never go fishing. So what we do is, when people are absolutely opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
but they're allowing you to enter the community to teach. We teach them the basis of play with the beliefs of the culture. So, in the village of Tonda in the Ivory Coast, the government had to build a road, and the sacred fish pond had a drainage pipe. And the compromise was this, to allow the people to live longer. If the fish were in the pond, they were family. But fish that went through the pipe onto the other side, those weren't family, because family knew better. Family stayed in the pond. <laughs> now, what that does is, whether you're in that Muslim community or that, we're teaching, teaching everything from the Christian worldview, that God has made all things good and everything there, and you're getting more time to be with the people, but you've dealt with the belief that controlled their behavior. Now, that's a little bit further along, but that <laughs> helps you deal with yeah. these issues. Roland and his wife, Debbie, are with us in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa. They've been there for, what, 15 years now, Rowan, doing, uh, doing community health evangelism. Uh, and, and they have one of the greatest, I think, examples of, of integrating these two ideas of, uh, because they've now begun to work with the uh, National Public Health System and the university system there to institute CHE as a national public health strategy uh, throughout, uh, throughout Ivory Coast. And, and that's the kind of thing that we would like to see where, where we engage healthcare professionals in CHE and CHE begin to see the, they begin to see the value in each other. Of, and I think that's really important if we're really serious about bringing healthcare to the poor. But, okay. Any other thoughts? Well, thank you guys. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Have you seen any nationals take this idea to work together without any Western I'm going to let Verlin take that one. <laughs> he lives it every day. Uh, that's where we actually are working here. On the vertical model, I was thinking you presented this. Mm -hmm. My goal and my understanding of a Christian is that the vertical level needs to exist within each nation of the earth. Mm -hmm. So what I'm after is that the Ivorians take care of everything within their nation. And they grab me as a horizontal partner. So, yes, I am seeing them run with it. Because I'm not trying to tell them what to do. I'm sitting down as an equal with them at the table. And then they're running it within their vertical systems and creating horizontal systems of their own within their culture. Um, Berlin and Debbie have been on furlough for two years. And more has happened in the last year. I mean, he just came back from six, seven weeks there. And it's on fire. And they're not even there. So that's them doing it. And which, you know, that's an awesome thing. That's what it's all about. Okay. Thank you, guys. God bless. <laughs>